Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. You can always reach me with questions or comments about our show at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. We are inundated with cooking competitions and an assortment of culinary-related shows populating the various platform and TV networks that find a way into our homes. Food is big business. If you are African-American operating in the culinary world, as I have been for the past 40 years, you probably often felt challenged to find a place in the ecosystem that had room for you. Black food, soul food, food emanating from the African diaspora, or even to be a Black restaurateur. Who tells the story of this long overlooked slice of culinary history? Well, my guest today, thankfully, is taking up a lot of space in that void. Bryant Terry is a James Beard and NAACP Image Award-winning chef, educator, and author. He's renowned for his activism to create a healthy, just, and sustainable food system. San Francisco Magazine included Bryant among 11 of the smartest people in the Bay Area food scene, and Fast Company named him one of nine people who are changing the future of food. He is the editor-in-chief of Four Color Books, an imprint of Penguin Random House and 10-Speed Press, and co-principal and innovation director at Zenmi, a creative studio that he founded. Since 2015, Bryant has been the chef-in-residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, and he's curating public programming at the intersection of food, farming, health, activism, art, culture, and again, the African Diaspora. His sixth book, A Collection of Recipes, Art, and Stories, is entitled Black Food, and it was published in 2021. And I'm in the middle of it, and I have to say that uh, it, it's it's fantastic. It's uh, it's all of that. It's art, it's stories, it's writing, it's food. It, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful book, and it obviously struck a chord. It's been on most of the uh, acclaimed cookbook lists as uh, the best cookbook of 2021. Bryant graduated from the Chef's Training Program at the Natural Gourmet Institute for Health and Culinary Arts in New York City. And also majoring in English, he graduated with honors from Xavier University. Bryant holds a Master of Arts in History with an emphasis on the African diaspora from NYU, where he studied under historian Robin D.G. Kelly. He lives between Oakland and Napa Valley with his wife and his two daughters, and he has taken a few minutes to join us here on Corner Table Talk. Brian, welcome. Thank you for having me on, Brad. Such a pleasure. Yeah, man. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. So we kick things off. I like I like music. I want to find out what you're listening to, man. What's on your playlist? Wow. So thank you. That's such a great place to start and just makes me very happy about this interview. Um, Abby Lincoln, I have been mm-hmm. just revisiting her body of work. Um, a lot of the stuff, uh, obviously, that she did with Max Roach, her um, former husband and creative partner. And yeah, just, you know, when I hear Abby Lincoln, it just it feels like she sets everything right. You know, I think her radical politics and her just softness and, and just beauty, it just spans the gamut. So Abby Lincoln has been on my mind a lot. I hear you there, brother. She's, you know, we all love and, uh, and listen to a lot of Nina Simone, but uh, Abby Lincoln is right next door. Thank you for that. So tell me, what healthy morning beverage do you consume? (laughs) Well, I can give you kind of the breakdown. The first thing that I typically uh, consume when I first wake up is uh, a big glass of hot water just to kind of, you know, get the juices flowing and wake me up. But You know, I try not to be judgmental about it. I've been having coffee a lot. And there's a part of me that, you know, in the past, I'm like, oh, coffee's just bad. It's just, you know, overstimulating me. And I just need to keep off of it. But I've been enjoying coffee. Uh, My buddy, Keba Conte, owns this uh, coffee company, Red Bay Coffee. And, you know, he talks about um, coffee being Africa's gift to the world and really pushing us to 
reimagine the coffee space because I think oftentimes when we think about coffee in the context of uh, the United States, it's uh, very you know white privileged spaces that come to mind. But when we think about uh, it's particularly you know with cafes and that kind of culture, but when you think about the kind of origins, when you think about the seed to table cycle and who's growing and um, harvesting and transporting, it's black and brown folks. And so uh, I've been reconnecting with coffee and, and trying not to feel guilty about it. But then I also, I also have my um, green juice. So water, coffee, and green juice are the trifecta of my morning beverages. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, man. That sounds very familiar. I think uh, we're, in, we're in alignment there. What, uh, what is your favorite spice? Favorite spice? Uh, I don't. Can I give? Can, can it be a spice blend, or does it? Have of to course. Be, say, oh, okay. Bad, 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 bad is the melange of spices that uh, come together, and uh, this blend is one of the cornerstones. I, I, I would argue, I guess, the cornerstone of a lot of Ethiopian and Eritrean cooking, and um, I, I keep bad, bad here for you know both using to enhance dishes when I'm making them, but sometimes just to sprinkle on things like bad, bad popcorn is one of my favorite little snacks to have. I have to say. Nice. Yeah. I, I think I noticed uh, that come up quite a few times in, uh, in black food in your, in your recent book. Mm-hmm. All right. Where have you not been that is high on your list to travel to? Wow. Um, where have I not been? Huh? You know, I, I could think, deeply about this, but I'm just going to say what comes to mind, Cabo, Cabo, Mexico. And I'm I'm actually going there for uh, my wife and I are going to be traveling there in a couple months to celebrate the 50th birthday of a good friend of ours. So I, I, I'm, I'm excited about Cabo and I'm so excited about just being on a beach and just getting away from everything. So yeah, Cabo. <laughs> Well, happy travels, man. Sounds like you need a break, and Cabo's a good spot for that. So, yeah, you'll you'll get some rest and relaxation. So, last one of these, Brian. Who, past or present, would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party, and what would you prepare? Ooh, um, wow. I'm gonna answer that in two ways because there is the dinner that I would like to have with Edna Lewis the person that is often described as the grand dam of Southern cooking, a major inspiration on my work. Um, her book, A Taste of Country Cooking, was such a revelation. And, and you know, discovering her when I was a culinary student and felt like there were very few role models that I had. She was certainly the person that I felt like I wanted to emulate in in so many ways from her, you know, celebration of hyper-local food from, you know, Freetown, Virginia, where she's from. Um, Me being from the South could definitely relate to that, you know, having family with agrarian roots in the rural South and, you know, them bringing all those traditions to the city, you know, Memphis, where I grew up. Um, You know, I think about her pride and her Blackness and just always celebrating you know, being an African in North America through her, you know, the way she dressed and styled her hair and her jewelry. And certainly when I was in culinary school, being like the only black male and just a few, one of a few people of color in my class, um, I was, you know, fist in the air when I learned about her just be like, she's like repping um, black culture hard. So anyway, I'd I'd love to have um, a meal with her and I would make recipes from her book, A Taste of Country Cooking. But, you know, in terms of just the person that I think about almost every day, one of my favorite creative people, uh, the rapper MF Doom, who passed away, um, I think it was 2020, uh, when he passed away in October of that year. And I, you know, in terms of just creativity, humor, dedication to craft, um, general brilliance. He's one of my biggest inspirations and I would love to have a meal with him and make him whatever he wants. But he, you know, the thing about him, he was a a MC, but he's also a producer. And I love that he emphasized food often in his music. I mean, he literally has an album called "Mm, food where he kind of delves into different, you know, topics and plays with food a lot. But as a producer, um, MF doom, you know, um, his moniker, 
metal fingers doom um, on the boards. He has a number of, uh, I guess, <laughs> I, I, I would say CDs, but he has a number of projects <laughs> that um, are all beats and all the beats are named after herbs. They're Literally, they're called Fresh Herbs. That's the name of the collection. So, you know, one song might be like hibiscus and another one is like, you know, cumin. And I just love <laughs> that um, food is such a thread throughout his work. Uh, I'd love him regardless because of his brilliance, but the fact that he's really into food just makes me uh, love him any, even more. So I'd love to have a, a meal with Doom. Man, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, that, that would be a new one for me. I'd, Edna Lewis, I'm of course very well aware of and um, you know, taste the country cooking. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a novice at uh, when it comes to the kitchen, although I've spent a lot of my whole life in restaurants, but I, her corn pudding, I can throw down on, man. I make that corn pudding. That she does. Yes. So I'm good there. All right. So let's jump in. Um, I like to just kick things off. How, how are you doing? How, how are you feeling these days? I am feeling overstretched, um, overwhelmed. You know, I have to say, in the spirit of full disclosure, I knew that this new phase of my career with um, my publishing and print and black food would uh, catapult me to the stratosphere. I didn't realize it would happen so quickly. The book has been out mm-hmm. since October. And, you know, as you mentioned, the response has just been phenomenal. I mean, critically acclaimed. Um sales have been great and just general goodwill, you know, it just makes me so happy to just see posts every single day with folks continuing to discover the book. Like, I love this book. Thank you. This is, somebody told me yesterday that they have given that uh, black food away as gifts to over 50 people. (laughs) And I was just taken aback, like not five, 50 people. And I think that attests to, the the vision that we as a team had uh, for the book, and we were very clear. We we saw the vision, we knew it would manifest it, and we put all the pieces in place to actualize that vision. Um, and you know, along with the success of the book and the excitement about the imprint, I'm getting a lot of opportunities thrown my way from you know media opportunities to um, speaking engagements and other appearances, and. Last night, I was just feeling overwhelmed because it's Black History Month. And, you know, as you can imagine, a brother's really busy this month. Uh, Shout out to those who actually uh, thought about Black History Program months ago and didn't just contact me like last week trying to put something together at the last minute. Uh, But, you know, I have to say that I had to just kind of shift my thoughts around uh, the coming weeks because they're going to be extremely busy. And one of my inspirations in terms of just hustle is Kevin Hart. I love his grind and his hustle. And, you know, he's one of the people who really inspired me at the beginning of the pandemic, just to like recommit to my physical activity and just like doing 45 minutes of cardio every day. And then kind of embracing, um, CrossFit a little later on, but I love his just work ethic and it inspires me so much. And I think that, um, for me kind of reframing this month as this is my tour, you know, in the spirit of like him doing a comedy tour and him getting in his zone and training. I'm like, you know what? This is my tour. I'm about to be super disciplined about getting my eight hours of sleep every night about, you know, my physical activity, about, you know, diet and hydrating and everything I need to do to be uh, 100% so that I can fully embrace uh, everything that's coming towards me this month and have fun with it. Like, I don't want to do it begrudgingly. I don't want to feel like, oh my God, I got to do this other speaking engagement that I'm getting paid for. You know, it's just like, come on, like, this is a dream for me. And trust me, there were years of struggle and years of just living from book deal to book deal and, you know, doing lots of events and not getting paid what I thought I should deserve to be paid. So to be in this this position in this moment now just feels so good. Um, and I, I, I knew that we would get here, but like everything, it takes time. It takes commitment. It takes grinding. It takes... Um, you know, just being connected to spirit and knowing that um, I can manifest whatever I want. So um, here we are. Yeah, man, I, you know, I feel you. there's a lot there and uh, we're going to come back to the book because it hit me in a lot of different ways that I want to that I want to touch on um, with you. 
And, you know, as you're speaking about the, you know, the demands on you and in particular because of the fact that this is Black History Month, um, you know, I'm reminded because I'm a, a little bit older than, than you are, you know, that there was a time when there was, you know, there was a void. <laughs> we didn't have, uh, we weren't busy, you know, unless we were doing it for ourselves. And even then, um, you know, it was in front of a smaller audience. So I, but I, I want to come back to that. I want to, you know, just, just take you back a little bit first, because I'm, I'm curious about your background and where the merger of um, African history and food kind of seemed to come together for you at, at NYU studying under the professor that you, that you studied under the professor Kelly. But uh, was, was that where it started to come together? The, the two worlds that you've now really kind of um, made one, <laughs> if you will. You know, I, I don't think I could talk about those things merging without talking about just my upbringing and growing up in this strong uh, black community in Memphis. And it's one of the things, you know, Edna Lewis grew up in Freetown, Virginia, and this is a town that was founded by formerly enslaved black folks. And it was just, a, you know, all black, all run town that nurtured and, you know, raised her. And I think about my upbringing in Memphis and it was, you know, especially living, having lived in New York and now living in the Bay Area. And I just feel so lucky that I was able to live in, um, you know, this strong middle-class neighborhood and, you know, having so many just brilliant and powerful Black people who surrounded us. You know, like my doctor was Black. My dentist was Black. You know, our um, attorney was Black. Like we just had Black folks who were excellent. And that always let me know that I could be excellent and do what I want. But, but you know, in regard to the food piece, it's just like we were surrounded by food. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we had these agrarian roots in um, rural Mississippi and Tennessee and Arkansas. So obviously, you know, my, my family coming to, uh, you know, this city, Memphis, my grandparents, they brought with them the survival techniques and the, you know, agrarian knowledge and the the desire to connect with the land and, and grow our own food. And they were very deeply connected to our cultural foods, you know, and, and I used to love spending time in my paternal grandfather's backyard and just hearing him just talk about, you know, these traditions of, uh, you know, uh, growing and cooking and eating what I describe as black food. And so I always had a pride in these uh, staple ingredients and flavor profiles and classic dishes of, um, you know, the American South, um, but also, you know, understanding that, you know, African-American cuisine, the food that we kind of know is black food in my mind is the original modern global fusion cuisine. So hearing those stories, you know, I didn't know this then, but ruminating on many of the uh, conversations I had with my grandfather, he was talking about African diasporic food. So, you know, just having that as my foundation, it's always something that I could draw upon. And I always say that all the work that I'm doing, everything that I'm talking about when I'm lecturing, when I'm writing about the food that I'm celebrating, I'm standing on the shoulders of many ancestors who came before me and, um, you know, just really kind of representing or repackaging in a modern context, but this isn't anything new, you know, and I'm very clear about that. And in fact, when we talk about just kind of like this thread throughout my work of plant-based eating, despite the fact that, you know, for a lot of people, especially the wider culture, when you hear the word vegan so often, you know, folks like Peter Singer, the philosopher who kind of solidified this idea or concept of veganism or, you know, Francis Morlapay or John Robbins, you know, two, the, the latter two being good friends and mentors of mine. But, you know, it, it's not just a traditional way that we might imagine vegans as these upper middle class white suburbanites or more recently, you know, young white hipsters living in cities. Like all the people I learned about veganism from when I was growing up were black folks, you know, from the Seventh-day Adventists in our community, um, from whom I first learned about this idea of just eating, you know, a diet devoid of animal products to 
um, you know, my obligatory, what I, what I see is the obligatory phase of a lot of young black men of my generation after reading the Malcolm, uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X kind of being obsessed with the nation of Islam and learning about the, um, honorable Elijah Muhammad's health ministry with, um, his two volume collection, how to eat to live. And then learning about, you know, the Ital diet of Rastafarians and then, you know, coming into contact with Dick Gregory's work and his book cooking with mother nature and learning about his dietary journey and his activism. And so I'm always uplifting this thread of Black-led food and health activism throughout the 20th century, not to mention KRS-One and Boogie Down Productions, the hip-hop crew that really, I would argue, kind of like catalyzed my uh, shift into food activism after I heard their song Beef that's about Mm -hmm. factory farming. So, uh, you know, deep, deep roots um, and many uh, multiple inspirations of people of African descent um, growing up who really laid the foundation for me to do all the work that I'm doing now. Yeah, thank you. I um, I also uh, read uh, Afro Vegan, your, your prior book, and the recipes that, uh, you know, that you cover there and the stories that you tell, man, are, are really fascinating and plenty of good food and, and good ideas in there about, about what we should eat. But I, I want to stay on for a moment, black food, because I feel that, you know, what you're working, you're working on several fronts here, Brian, and I'm, I'm going to read an excerpt from your introduction, quote, black food is a communal shrine to the shared culinary histories of the African diaspora. These pages offer up gratitude to the great chain of black lives and to all the sustaining ingredients and nourishing traditions they carried and remembered through time and space to deliver their kin into the future. You continue. Black food also includes moving visual art through thought provoking essays and imaginative poetry that will encourage spiritual and intellectual exploration, renewal, and growth. You know, I mean, this is a big but necessary endeavor. And I get, I, I feel like this is like healing. You know, it's offering healing through understanding culinary history, food pathways, art, and the written word. Uh, am I the only one that has felt that? Or am I onto something with that, with that feeling? You're certainly onto something with that, um, brother. And I, I just feel like you, you hit it on the head because that was really the intention uh, that I and the team I assembled went into when we created this book. Um, just a little background, Black Food, uh, I won't say the idea of it because the idea had been there since I started my residency um, at the Museum of the African Diaspora, the chef in residence. And I had always thought about this brilliant and magical programming at the museum and how we could share it with the world. Um, in the book itself, several of the chapters are literally, the titles are pulled from programming that I did at the museum from Black Women, Food and Power, to the Black Queer Food, to the Land Liberation and Food Justice uh, chapters. But, you know, the the, the catalyst for me, the, the thing that really just made it clear that this was the moment. It wasn't, there wasn't any need to wait for this book t- to uh, come into the world. It was in 2020 on the heels of uh, the state murders of George Floyd and uh, Breonna Taylor and the kind of racial reckoning that followed, you know, the uprisings, uh, you know, people really, people who weren't clear then being more clear about uh, the treatment of black folks in this country. And um, there was a moment where I had to ask myself, well, what can I do in this historical moment to contribute to the moment or the movement, I should say, because there was a lot happening on the ground. A lot of people were out in the streets and I'm at a point in my life now where I have a family, you know, I'm concern for their safety. And we would, you know, do the caravan protests. Uh, but I, I really felt like this book would be my gift in this moment because we did need not just, I mean, we needed healing. And, I, and you know, when I, when I approached all the contributors, what I told folks was that we can't talk about a history of, I mean, our history or the history of our food or, you know, the way our food is migrated and shift and change without, 
you know, acknowledging the ways in which we've been historically marginalized and erased and, and brutalized and all these things. But I didn't want that to be the focus of that book because I didn't think that was necessary right now. I think there are lots of texts that do that well. What this book, I wanted this book to inspire people. I wanted people to come from this book and not just, you know, I mean, us, obviously, but whoever decided to be a part of the conversation. But I did t- let the contributors know that this book, the spirit of this book is FUBU, for us, by us. I don't want, I didn't want, you know, the white gaze to be in consideration at all. I wanted this to be a conversation that we're having honestly with each other and inviting the world in. And, you know, the question I ask all the contributors is, you know, what is our brilliance and our our magic and our agency? You know, given Toni Morrison's um, kind of, she, she talks about racism being a distraction. And I asked everyone, well, what does... Our, what, what do our lives look like when we aren't distracted by like this albatross of racism and right. supremacy around our neck? And that's what I wanted people to bring to the book. And, and that's the energy that was brought to it. And and on that note, Brad, you know that there, I mean, there are two chapters in the book. <laughs> There's literally the uh, radical self-care and there is the leisure and lifestyle. I mean, there are mm-hmm. literally chapters in the book that are geared towards us just healing and caring for ourselves and ensuring that, you know, we're okay, especially in such a tumultuous historical moment. Well, I, you know, I want to come back to that. And, you know, it's interesting you opened with, you know, this planned trip to Cabo and, and, you know, the the need for some restoration. So, but I I do want to come back to that. But before I do, Brian, you know, you, you used um, the, the symbol, the symbolism of the Sankofa bird. You talk about that. And for me, that just, that really, really resonated, man. The idea of this bird that's flying forward um, with, you know, that keeps looking back and then the, the egg it's in a shell and it is symbolic of the future that has yet to, to happen. And when you're talking about how we as black Americans see ourselves, define ourselves, view ourselves, too often I think we get we stop at the definition of ourselves as it relates to slavery and not see a broader, richer, more cultural view that, as you said, there are works that are being, that people are are involved with that are doing that well, but it's also nice to lift that off of us for a moment. And then what do we talk about? What's important to us? And I, and that's what I got from, um, from your book and the, some of the brilliant essays and essayists that you had that you recruited to, to write. So I just wanted to make sure that I, that I let you know that, that, uh, that really landed for me. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Let's move on to something that I touched on in the opening that also gets addressed in Black Food in one of the brilliant essays from an assortment of writers. This one from Therese Nelson speaking to the void created by lack of inclusion. And she writes, at the precise moment, America was learning how to dine like the French and building a more robust culinary industry. Hard won civil rights were finally being afforded to black cooks giving them access to new professional opportunities outside of kitchens. This created a culinary generation gap that made the subsequent whitewashing of food an easier task to accomplish. She goes on to say, this fact becomes powerful commentary on the struggle modern Black food creatives have had in making headway in an industry that have a curiously short historical memory. What ensues is the creation of a multi-trillion dollar culinary industry that disempowered Blacks, stripping them of their historical birthright, and then asks why they don't have more authority and visibility in the marketplace. So she later talks about in the early 2000s, feeling unseen, trying to be heard, talking about stories involving Black foodways. And I can tell you, man, as a second generation Black restaurateur, what she's writing about is what I experienced as a restaurateur, where I'm not not saying that I, I've gotten some press coverage over the years, but it's different when you're being written about from the perspective of someone that understands where you're coming from. So can you unpack any part of what she said and address um, what inspires you about what uh, what she had to say in that quote? I mean, I can remember a time where even in my own career, it's just been interesting. And, you know, and I have to say that when I first started doing this work, it would often I, I think my feelings would be a little hurt because in my mind, my work was primarily about you know, helping to change the habits and attitudes and politics of Black folks. And when I would do events, it would be mostly white people in the audience. 
And I, I just would wonder, you know, well, what am I doing wrong? How can I resonate with this this bigger audience? And I think, um, you know, when Vegan Soul Kitchen was published, then that shifted things because I think it was clear that this was a book that was culturally relevant for a lot of Black folks and they saw themselves in this. But, you know, in my heart, I've always felt like that's the work, that's the reason I'm doing this work. You know, I understand uh, the ways in which this industry so often centers European food and the, the, just the idea of Black food, it, it, you know, it's, it's so often at the margins and it's, you know, misunderstood, disrespected. You know, I, I just think about the fact that for, for so many people, they can't even imagine the diversity and the complexity of these culinary traditions throughout the African diaspora. And, you know, when people hear this term Black food, you know, what I found is that they are imagining one or two things. As you mentioned earlier, the kind of antebellum survival foods upon which many enslaved Africans had to rely. Uh, obviously, the institution of slavery wasn't a monolith and it looked different depending on the, you know, the way that enslaved Africans would grow and, and cook food and eat it look different depending on the geographic location and the disposition and financial status of the plantation owner. So there are just so many factors that uh, even kind of push back against that idea of some monolithic like slave food. But then the other thing is I think people have reduced it to the comfort foods of the cuisine, you know, the kind of the, the food that one might find at a soul food restaurant, the deep fried, you know, um, animal products and overcooked vegetables and sugary desserts. I don't deny that either of those things are part of this larger, more diverse culinary tradition. The problem that I've had, or at least that was very apparent early on, is that the wider culture, I, I don't think that they... And, 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 you know, just thinking about like the media, thinking about publishing, thinking about like television, I think there was no room for us stepping outside of these very narrow boxes that they had for our cuisine and for the people who are representing it, um, which, you know, I, I think it's one of the reasons that um, Vegan Soul Kitchen resonated because it was playing off of this idea of quote unquote soul food, but, you know, giving it kind of a plant based um, twist. But I, I just think that it's it's beautiful being in a place now where you have, you know, these black creatives who aren't waiting anymore. You know, folks who are just creating their own opportunities is one of the reasons where I felt the need to um, pitch this publishing imprint um, that we got from Penguin Random House, because I think it's about us owning and driving and creating the solutions uh, to these problems that we've seen historically, because it's clear we can't wait for the wider culture to fix these problems for us. Um, you know, I, I think it's there's so many systemic problems that I, I, I'd like to use my platform to continue to, um, you know, push for solutions that are driven by us. You know, even you mentioning just restaurants, you know, there should be with with the number of black millionaires and billionaires that we have. I, I think there should be funds, all types of investment funds just to help support, you know, restaurateurs and people who um, are hoping to get some projects off the ground, especially in, in, in a period where, you know, this industry has been struggling so much. So uh, I feel like we're in a better place, but obviously there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. And um, I really hope to continue to be a part of uh, creating these solutions. No, it's, a, it's important, man. And you bring up, a, you know, several important topics, but I'll touch on the last one. You know, I'd had JJ, Chef J.J. Johnson on the podcast a while back, and I know he has since gotten some funding, but we were talking about that very subject, Brian, where, you know, he's got a, a great concept with his uh, rice concept in New York. And, uh, you know, it had several ongoing conversations with folks whose names I won't mention, but prominent African-Americans with means. And, you know, while Sweet Greens continues to attract funding and, and some of the other more well-known uh, white-owned businesses, white-owned restaurant chains and groups uh, have no trouble attracting African-American funding, we entrepreneurs and, and, and restaurateurs do have trouble with that. And um, I think the more that you talk about this, the more I think we'll bring it, you know, into being. And we'll talk it into 
existence. So I'm, I'm fully in support of that conversation continuing. I wanted to uh, bring into the conversation something that uh, historian Jessica B. Harris wrote in her essay uh, in Black Food titled Out of Africa Musings on Culinary Connections to the Motherland. She wrote, quote, we know the continent is vast, one into which the United States could fit three times. That, that blew me away, just the thought of that. Uh, but in fact, we know very little about this continent that is ringed in legends and even less about its foodways. So, Brian, as someone who has studied history, where would you say we are on the arc of discovery about what has not been known or practiced by Black Americans? If what Jessica B. Harris is saying is true, that we know so little about the continent, its foodways and its legends, where are we? I think we're in a great place. I think the most important thing is that these stories are told by people who come from these cultures and understand them deeply and have studied them and have lived experience in these cultures. And I think it's important, you know, this uh, professor at the University of North Texas, Jennifer Wallach, writes about, you know, the the multiple narratives of black food. Mm -hmm. There are no singular narratives, you know, there, um, so many. And I think that was, that, that reality was actually one of the kind of, when I was approaching black food, I was very clear that the most authentic book that I could help, uh, put together would be one that gave voice to that allowed the people who are, you know, working in this field, who have these experiences, who are living and traveling throughout the Black diaspora to tell their stories and to talk about their most uh, authentic connection to these traditions, you know, these histories, these memories, and these recipes. And, you know, as, as, as you know, this is a departure from my body of work in that this is not a vegan cookbook. And most of, you know, all my, my prior books are vegan cookbooks, but it was one of those decisions where I knew that in order to tell the most authentic story, I didn't want to force this book to be something that it wouldn't, it shouldn't be. And what the book should be is a book of these diverse voices, as I mentioned, um, reflecting on and envisioning, you know, black food in a way that is most authentic and, um, you know, makes the most sense for them and then giving us the opportunity to listen and learn. It's it's a powerful format, man, between the essays and the art and then the recipes. I mean, you're just in a mindset where, you know, it, it's where you want to, where you want to be. I, I mean, I just, I find myself, you know, cracking this book open and having a, a little um, Cabernet, man, and putting my feet up and a little something soft in the background. And it just, it transports me. Um, I want to, the last quote I want to read here is from uh, the historian Michael Twitty uh, from his essay in your book entitled Footsteps in Motion, Migration and Black Food. He writes, quote, and yet there was trauma. New invaders came and left less than they took. Trauma moved food as fast as trade and expansion by foot and ship. The African Atlantic would represent the mass transfer of a third of Africa's population to the Western world. More bodies would arrive this way than from Europe until the 1820s, and with them an entire 70,000 years of eating, cooking, searching, hunger. Enslavement was the cause of the movement. It meant new unfathomable pangs to come, pangs of exile, then an exhausting ache for memory to keep the culture alive despite the whip, the gun, violations of body and spirit, and a demand to forget. Whew, that's powerful stuff, man. Um, why was it important to you uh, to include these voices, uh, Brian? And what does it say, man? This is such a rich pool of talented writers, you know, that can speak to this. I think it says that Going back to your last question, that we're in a good place. <laughs> I think we're in such a great place that there's, you know, immense interest among Black folks in not just owning a restaurant or, you know, being a contestant on a cooking show, but, you know, folks who are going back to graduate school and, you know, getting advanced degrees um, that are, you know, doing and, and doing research projects around black food ways um, 
you have so many people who are like interested in just the multiple fields that I think often folks don't know about, you know, from like, you know, because people know about like being a writer. Yeah. I'm interested in writing a book, but then things like food photography and food styling and prop styling. And I think, you know, because I've always had this approach where I like to start with the visceral, you know, although a book like this has a lot of heady intellectual ideas and essays in them. I don't necessarily think that that's the best way to create the widest table. I think there are a lot of educational class assumptions that we make when it's about just appealing to the intellect. And that's why, um, you know, beauty is is so important to me. That's why recipes have always been um, forward in my work, because I know that um, feeding someone a delicious plant-based meal is a much more powerful way to help them think differently about their consumption than haranguing them about the ills of factory farming, you know? And so I, I'm saying that to, to say that I just love the this younger generation of just seeing the excitement that folks have about being in this field and, and, and looking at all these novel approaches that people are bringing to the food space. And so... Um, you know, I, I think it's important for the OGs like Twitty and me and um, JJ Johnson and Jessica Harris and Tony Tipton Martin and the list goes on for us to one ensure that we're passing down this knowledge and that you know we are. Folks need to know that in this moment where you can, you know, I, I see a lot of younger folks getting these big book deals and lots of money thrown at them and getting opportunities to do shows and opportunities to do a lot of things that, you know, people of our generation and especially of Jessica Harris's and Tony Tipton Martin's and, you know, Edna Lewis generation, if you want to go even further back, folks had to scrap and scrape for us to get here. There were lots of like fights. There were lots of moments of just, feeling like we were being disrespected and unseen and we've pushed through. And I just, I think that it's important that we have this intergenerational conversation. And this goes back to the, my emphasis on Sankofa. Uh, That's just for me personally, I'm always thinking about this concept, you know, not just as a historian, but as a human being, knowing that um, the most powerful way forward is for us looking back and learning these best practices and, um, you know, stories and really connecting with older generations so that we can have it for this present moment, but also so we can transmit that and ensure that the future generations are connected to these histories and memories as well. Yeah, absolutely, man. Good point. You know, I know you you mentioned that uh, the the when you're serving someone a delicious vegan meal, you know, maybe the this the discussion around the dysfunctional food system is not sustainable and it's dysfunctional. Maybe that's not you know the the time for that conversation, but that is of course part of the conversation. And you are a food justice advocate, so can you talk a little bit just about how? the food system is dysfunctional and not sustainable. And explain, if you will, the term agroecology. Well, the thing about talking about our <laughs> our food system and the, the multiple uh, problems that we see in our um, food system is that, you know, there's so many ways that we can unpack that. And I, I guess I'd like to start by talking about the problems that I focus on, because we can talk about like the, the issues that small to mid-sized farmers in rural areas are, are struggling with. We could talk about, you know, issues around, I mean, like farmers internationally, as you probably know, the emphasis of my work has been addressing this reality that so many communities across the country deal with, with the lack of access to healthy, fresh, and affordable and culturally appropriate food and the impact that that has had on the health of our communities. I mean, we know that, you know, over the past several decades, there's been an exponential rise in preventable diet-related illnesses uh, among um, African-Americans. And, you know, so much of that is connected to what we're eating. Um, I think it's important to note that while we're focusing on food, we can't look at food in a vacuum. We need to understand that, you know, most communities that suffer from food injustice, these are the same communities that are dealing with, um, you know, industries 
that are coming into these communities and poisoning them. So environmental racism, these are the same communities that have very few jobs. And oftentimes the jobs that are available don't pay a living wage. These are the same communities that, um, are dealing with, you know, these broken educational systems with uh, these segregated and underfunded public schools. So, you know, we need to understand that lack of access to healthy, fresh, affordable food is simply one indicator of material deprivation in many of these uh, historically marginalized communities, right? But at the same time, um, we do need to focus on food and we do need to ensure that we're empowering people and communities to feed themselves and to be the ones who, because I, you know, the thing that, that I think separates food justice from this idea of like, you know, the food movement, you know, the food movement being this kind of movement that I think a lot of people would, uh, you know, kind of point to the Bay Area as being a major site for kind of catalyzing this interest in, you know, supporting uh, small farmers, small to mid-sized farmers and eating, you know, local uh, foods that are locally grown and sustainably grown. You know, a lot of the work that Alice Waters uh, kicked off with uh, Chez Panisse and just the whole movement that um, she started, or I should say that, you know, she was a part of pushing forward. But the thing about food justice that I always remind people is that it, it moves beyond advocacy. It moves beyond direct service. And it calls for organized responses that are owned and driven by the people living in these historically impacted communities. And it's not outsiders coming in and say, this is how you should fix the problem. Um, but it's the people knowing that they know the problem. They have a lot of great ideas for solutions, but they need power and resources shifted to them to actually help them to, um, you know, create those solutions. Um, so anyway, uh, this idea, uh, you, you talked about agroecology and, I think it's an important concept that we we should all understand more, you know, this idea of just really understanding how when we center the production of food um, that is done in a way that doesn't ruin our environment, that's, you know, centered on um, sustaining natural, uh, the natural environment. I think that that just goes back to, you know, this reality that we have to have an approach that pushes back against capitalism when we talk about transforming our food system. Because the reality is, is that we're living in a world where over 50% of our food system is controlled by five multinational corporations. And Capitalism does what capitalism does. Like these corporations, they're invested in increasing the profits for their shareholders. That's their main allegiance. Obviously, if there are, you know, where it, it, it's been funny just seeing how the world is, or, or I shouldn't say the world, but a lot of the corporations over the past like decade or so, they they, they caught on like, oh, these there's an interest in veganism, you know? So <laughs> then they start, you know, of course, there's the, the, the market uh, impetus for them to create products that are marketed towards vegans. But I always say, uh, I'm going to go over to whole paycheck or whatever um, overpriced corporate owned health food store and get me my organic, vegan, gluten-free uh, water, you know? And I just, I use that example because I, I just, it's just funny to see how so many of these products are being marketed as healthful or, you know, natural. I mean, really they use a lot of terms that don't even have a legal definition, but they're just trying to convince us to buy products. And so that's why I think that the production of food has to be in, in the hands of the people. And we have to invest in, um, you know, really driving solutions. And it's been exciting seeing it happen. I'm seeing a lot of young people going back to the land, inheriting land that their families might have owned, taking over these legacy farms. Um, you know, as you said, just in the food space, in terms of restaurants, you know, a lot of people really, you know, putting investment into um, just 
entrepreneurship and, and creating businesses that 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 we own that are not just putting um, money into these corporations that are in some distant place, but are ensuring that local communities can thrive and grow and that we can, you know, employ people, we can give people skills, we can help young people have, um, you know, express their brilliance and creativity and, and, and learn skills that they can then take into their adult lives. So, um, yeah, it's it's an exciting place that we're in. Yeah, you know, and you, I mean, you bring up several really interesting points and and, and concepts I, and ideas. You know, I, I I think back, Brian, to we opened um, a place called Post and Beam in South LA in 2011, 2012, and I remember doing an interview. Uh, I don't remember who it was with, but uh, when the the first time that I heard the term food deserts, um, you know, I was asked about uh, during an interview and I really hadn't. I mean, we, you know, any of us who've spent time in urban neighborhoods, I'm from New York City. So, you know, I certainly know what places uh, in Harlem look like and what kind of stores and, and, you know, dominated those neighborhoods. But in South L.A., uh, you know, I don't have to tell you an overabundance of check cashing, liquor stores, 7-Elevens, you know, and not a lot of healthy food. But, you know, what I we also felt, though, Brian, as we tried to introduce, you know, a garden, uh, an on-site vegetable and herb garden and, you know, variety of foods, along with some of the staples that we know and we love, it was a bit of turning a big ship in the night in terms of getting the the response from the neighborhood to un, or the neighborhood to understand, you know, what we were trying to do in terms of trying to offer a more balanced approach to a dining out experience in that particular neighborhood. Um, what would you say to that? I mean, I think that the as the chorus has certainly gotten louder, and this was going back to 2014, 15, when, you know, we were experiencing that. And by now, you know, you look at South LA and, and you know, other places have popped up. Certainly, you know, um, Atlanta, you know, there's there are vegan restaurants in Atlanta and Detroit. I mean, and, and black folks are well aware of vegan food and healthier eating. But there has been a need to kind of turn that ship culturally. Have you felt that? I mean, for sure. And I think, you know, there's been a culture of unhealthy eating in a lot of our communities. And part of the reason is, I mean, I think the main reason is our industrialized food system. You know, I'm mm. always uh, careful about talking about this culture of unhealthy eating or overindulgence or whatever, because I don't want to ever appear to be blaming the victim. Right. And we know that structurally many people are just dealing with what's available. You know, when you, as you mentioned in neighborhoods like uh, South LA or East Orange, I don't know, South Memphis, Tennessee, West Oakland, California, you know, it's the same neighborhood across the country where, um, as one of my colleagues who did a lot of food justice work in New York said, you could find a, a gun quicker than you could find an organic apple, right? And so I think that, you know, when you have a situation where, I'll put it like this, when I first moved from Brooklyn to Oakland in 2008, they did a study in West Oakland, California, the same community where the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense was founded in the um, late 60s. And there were 53 corner stores and liquor stores, and there wasn't one single supermarket. And I don't in any way, you know, I wouldn't argue that a, the, a supermarket, a corporate owned supermarket is a cornerstone for food security or food justice. But I think every community deserves one, especially when these corner stores and liquor stores uh, upon which many of the residents of these communities are reliant for their food sources. You know, we know what they sell, lots of cigarettes and tobacco and um process and packaged food, uh, you'll be lucky to find any fresh food in these places. And when you do, it's often bruised and battered. And to add injury to insult, so often the prices of the same items that you might find in a conventional supermarket in a more affluent neighborhood, they're, they're double the price uh, sometimes in these little corner stores and liquor stores. And so um, for me, I just feel like we can't just talk about changing the culture without changing the material reality of these communities. And I know from talking to people, because the thing is, when you talk to the, uh, a lot of the older residents there, like they have memories and connection to eating a lot of farm fresh food because a lot of these folks migrated from the South. You know, I'm thinking about like the West Coast and just, you know, with mm -hmm. the second uh, great migration, a lot of people moving out here for different industries and people talk about their uh, 
farms that their nanas and their, their their papas used to have and how they would, you know, grow up eating a lot of like fresh from the garden food. And it's almost like this cultural amnesia that our industrialized food system and that, you know, this kind of stretches a period where so many of these communities haven't had a lot of fresh food where people, you know, when I talk about these things, they're like, oh yeah, I forgot my, my Nana used to have, you know, a little kitchen garden or she used to be canning and pickling and, and preserving. And so I think it's for me, the ship it's, it may seem insurmountable, but one, there's a lot of goodwill and excitement, um, from folks in communities when they feel like they're part of the solution. Like people don't like to feel like you're coming in and plopping down some solution to say, here, here, you know, everything's fixed now. Just act accordingly. People uh, want to feel agency in creating solutions. They want to feel like they have uh, ideas that can then, you know, contribute to transforming communities. And that's why some of the most successful efforts that I've seen have been when you have these longstanding trusted institutions like, you know, churches and other faith-based institutions or community organizations who then couple the work that they're doing with um, some analysis around food and food justice. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like that church that has that huge industrialized kitchen that's been pretty much unused for two decades when they activated and started teaching cooking classes and maybe they have a lot of land that's being unused and they grow food on the land and then they're giving it away to the church members or allowing folks to come in and learn about, you know, making like pickles and preserves. Then that like creates this excitement among people. But I just want to quickly go back to my point around why we can't think we just can spin our way out of, uh, you know, whatever solution like food injustice or, you know, whatever Uh, these, these big corporations, I just think people need to understand that they have very little stake in um, addressing environmental issues and addressing animal rights and addressing uh, workers' rights. And so, you know, we can try to do what we can to push them to, to get things right. But I think it's just bigger than the, 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 the feelings of a CEO or people within the institutions. This is structural. And I think this is a moment where we have to think about creating our own institutions outside these existing ones. And when people do that, then they're much more invested in seeing them thrive and, and, and changing um, their realities. Well said. You know, Mark Bittman, the former New York Times columnist, has a book that addresses some of those subjects called Animal Vegetable Junk that I would recommend for anybody that's uh, that's also interested in in this subject. So, Brian, we're, we're winding down here and um, I probably know the answer to this question, but I'm curious. And, and, and uh, so I'll ask you anyway, is there a brick and mortar uh, in your future anywhere? You're going to no, open up a place? Not at all. Not at all. Well, not a restaurant. I, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I think there was a part of me when I was in culinary school for a second where I was like, huh, maybe I want to work in a restaurant. I mean, I went into culinary school with a very clear vision of getting the skills to then, um, you know, create this organization, Be Healthy, which used cooking as a way to uh, empower young people living in some of the most marginalized communities in New York City. And... But there are moments where I was like, well, maybe I could have a restaurant or maybe I could re- work in a restaurant. But I'll say this, and I, I know you're very familiar with this. Uh, my friends who have restaurants, that's their whole life. You know, if they're not at the restaurant, they're thinking about it. They're they're shopping. They're doing the paperwork. They're, they're just, it never stops. And I, I just want to create a life where I have spaciousness to um, both take care of myself, but also uh, be present with my wife and my, my girls. But I do um, have a vision for opening a brick and mortar creative studio. You know, Zenmi Creative is a um, studio that I really see as a house for all the projects that my family has, you know, from my oldest daughter, who's a brilliant, you know, cellist and pianist, and now she's learning music production. If she's making beats and she wants to sell her beats, they can go through Zenmi. My youngest daughter, who's a visual artist, if she's selling her paintings and other artwork, it can go through there. And I think it'd be nice to have a physical space where we can invite people in for meetings and exhibitions and collaborations and whatever else. So that is definitely uh, a, a long-term vision that I have. 
Yeah, that's beautiful, man. And, and I can tell you, you're, you're smart to um, put your and, and smart to recognize the uh, the the work and hours and uh, the never ending responsibility of owning, you know, any small business, but certainly a restaurant, as we all know, folks you always used to tell me when they asked me what I do, oh, I'm in the restaurant. But, oh, man, that's such a hard way, such a hard way to make a living. You know, restaurant business is so hard. And Brian, I tell you, man, I never really felt that way. Uh, until I got a little bit older and my body started to feel the uh, the mileage that I had put in on various floors over the years. But the wealth of the relationships, man, and the people and the experiences for me, that was that was worth it. It was my extension of my social life, man. And I got so much out of it. And as, and as I hear you speak, I'm reminded that in, in during during those decades, these opportunities that you now speak of were not available. Right. We did not have my father had a, a restaurant, black owned restaurant in Manhattan, basically ignored by the mainstream press. They just we just weren't on their radar. So as these stories start to get told, don't forget the story of the restaurant tour. You know, because in some way, I think the Alberta Wrights and uh, the Ed Smalls, the Smalls Paradise, and some of these folks have carried the baton uh, a long distance. And I think that uh, there's there's worthy recognition that's uh, that's due in that regard. I, I totally agree with you, Brad. And I have to say that my uh, creative director, Amanda Yee, she comes from a family of um, restaurateurs here in Oakland. And it's a conversation that we've had many times. And I do think this is a story that needs to be told and we need to be documenting and and just hearing from people who have held it down in the entrepreneurial space, especially, as you mentioned, in, um, you know, these moments where, I mean, look, if if a lot of my friends who are restaurateurs think it's hard now, I'm just like, imagine what folks were going through, like, you know, 50 years ago. So kudos to uh, your family and all those who pushed through and, you know, really provided a blueprint for a lot of these younger folks to be able to build upon. Yeah, brother. Appreciate that. You have the mic, as they say. Um, so before we go, man, I'm, you know, both Ambassador Shabazz and I have a sweet tooth. And I was wondering if you could tell us what your favorite dessert is of the moment. I was kind of feeling this coconut rice pudding with nectarines that I saw in Afro Vegan. But I'm going to let you tell me what you like. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, I'm going to answer that in two ways. One, my favorite dessert from Black Food that I've had several times since the book is published is this uh, blueberry vegan Blueberry Cheesecake by the brilliant Malcolm Livingston III, uh, Bronx-born, L.A.-based chef who's a part of the Ghetto Gastro Collective. Um, But my favorite dessert, hands down, and it's, it's simple, but it's just the thing that brings me so much joy. Chocolate chip, or not chocolate chip, I'm sorry, a chocolate cupcake. My friend Catherine gave us half a dozen cupcakes that she made these brilliant vegan chocolate chip cupcakes with chocolate icing and some sprinkles on top you give me one of those and some cold almond milk i'm good to go (laughs) man (laughs) see i knew you would do that to me brother but thank you man for that that's a great visualization i'm gonna i'm gonna have to look that up but uh brian terry busy guy you're doing a lot man great work so love what you're doing, brother. And I really appreciate you taking the time today to join us here at Corner Table Talk. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And um, whenever you want to have me back, I'm here. So here we go, folks, with How We Move and Ambassador Shabazz. We are talking Bryant Terry and Black Food, Afro-Vegan. That brother's got a lot going on. As he said, he's busy and uh, his books are, are worthy. What do you think? Well, he's definitely a maestro of plenty. I mean... You know, I was not surprised by the countenance, um, but delighted by the depth and the range and the continued journey of his exploration as it relates to all fusions of his life. Um, you know, he first of all, he had me at Abby Lincoln. I don't even hear people mention Abby Lincoln's name, you know. Um, and so it took me back nostalgically I don't know his age, but it took me back nostalgically and, and enabled me to really tune in to the depth of 
his authenticity, no matter what artery of social culture he's diving into or history he's diving into. It seems that everything I learn about Bryant Terry is to the fullest. He does not let go. He's unyielding in his quest to uncover uh, information and then fuses them, then brings it back home, makes it palatable and delivers it in a way that the layman or the novice can feel their place at the table. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed him. And, you know, the um, the book itself, Black Food, as I said, as I was speaking with him, it's so rich in as you discover, you know, one chapter after another, one essay after another, one recipe after another. And you just picture this beautiful picture just starts to formulate in your mind about what we can do and what he has done. And how it represents, you know, our culture, our food, our art, our history, our music. It's it's all there. And it's it's um it's an experience read. Well, you know, I mean, it's a gorgeous book, you know, and not only are the chapters fascinating, but it's like an art piece within itself. I mean, it's something that you would have on your shelf and not just the outside because it's colorful. But as soon as you open it up, the inside jacket is just a kind of a. Um, um, a montage of words and names and tribute and honor and homage, which is also chronicled again in the backs in the in the back of the book in the index. You know, um, it just took me back to days of old when you go into the library and everything you needed to find would be under that alphabetical order. Just brilliant um, um, piece of work, and makes me want to dive in, crawl up in a corner and uh, savor. You know, I said to you the other day, we need an RV. (laughs) 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 We we need some kind of how you move corner table or corner table, how you move uh, RV, because I'm ready to touch down. I was, I was thinking about his journeys and where he goes to get his uh, uh, inspirations. And I said, yeah, that's a ticket. That's a ticket. Yeah, we, I hope Airstream is listening and, and decides, you know, that we're worthy of a, of a little sponsorship here. But uh, yeah, first stop is Zen Me. I dug yeah. what he said he was going to uh, create for his daughters. That also moved my heart. Yeah. You know, yeah. creating that space. Uh, first of all, honoring. He described both daughters with such devotional love. Um, and it made me want to meet them, be in their spaces and uh, kind of top of squat at Zen me. Yeah. So recommending black food and Afro vegan. Uh, if you're interested in any of either of these two works, they're really, really brilliant pieces of work done brilliant. by Brian Terry, our guest today, Ambassador Shabazz, how we move. Thank you so much for joining and your words of wisdom. Thank you, dear brother. See you soon. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.